Hello and welcome back to the Football Index podcast, episode 95. Yes, 95 weeks in a row where the Figcast has come to you on a Sunday. Uh, Today I'm joined by a really special guest, someone that I didn't really think was possible to get on a show like this, but his name is Dan Altman and he is the founder and CEO of of Smarter Scout, which some of you guys may have seen around on Twitter. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Pat. How are you? I'm not too bad, not too bad at all. I think it's best for you just to give yourself a, an introduction and talk a bit about yourself and your background because it's a, a very interesting past that you've got. Uh, well, that could be in a Confucian sense, I don't know. But, uh, uh, you know, I am an economist by training. I did my doctorate in economics and I went on to do a bunch of different jobs in economics for about 15 years. I was uh, an academic, I was in journalism. I as a strategic consultant, I was in academics, uh, and wrote a bunch of books. But after 15 years or so of this, I just kind of got bored and uh, always liked football, played football. So uh, I decided to buy some data from Opta and uh, played around with it a bit using my old statistical software. When I got some interesting results, I decided to try and get in touch with some clubs. And when I got a favorable response, I started my consulting firm, North Yard Analytics. I uh, did consulting for a while with different clubs, Premier League clubs, uh, clubs around the world, really. Uh, and then uh, started working in-house with an ownership group that had a Premier League club at that time, Swansea City, and another club in MLS, DC United. Uh, you know, that was a really interesting and educational time. A bit frustrating because I was running a lot of advanced analytics for them, but they weren't really paying much attention to what I was saying. <laughs> Uh, but it showed the power of the platform because, for example, when Wayne Rooney came over to D.C., the, he hit all the numbers that uh, I, I, my analytics had predicted really perfectly. And that was a real proof that you could predict how a player from one league would perform in another. And so uh, after I finished up with that ownership group after a couple of years, I said, well, this is a really powerful tool. Uh, let's put it on a platform where lots of people can access it. Uh, and and see really what the potential is. I think it's one of the best ways to improve how people understand analytics and the role of analytics in the game is to just get lots of people exposed to it, Uh, same as it's been in baseball and basketball and other sports here in the U.S. So that's how Smarter Scout was born. That's that's amazing, honestly. (laughs) it's, uh, It's crazy to think that still to this day or even when you were first starting approaching football clubs that they weren't really budging towards um, the stats side of things I seem to remember a presentation that the uh, Liverpool execs gave recently Uh, I I don't know if it was some sort of stats conference but they were talking about how they analysed Mo Salah's data and they kind of fouled their hypothesis was that he didn't fail at Chelsea it was kind of a blip and that the numbers were still good from his uh, time at Basel and then of course his time at Fiorentina and that's how they kind of uh, found good value in him yeah well it's absolutely true I mean if you go on Smarter Scout you can see Mo Salah's numbers from 2016-17 in Serie A at an English Premier League standard so we adjust his numbers from Italy to see how he might have performed had he been in the Premier League at that time and uh, they're stunning. I mean, his attacking output is a 94 on a scale of 0 to 99. His finishing of non-headers and open plays is an 81. Uh, you know, th- there was no doubt that he was going to be an exceptional player in the Premier League as far as those numbers were concerned. And uh, why don't you dig into Smarter Scout a bit more? I know we've got loads of questions going forward that I'm sure you're going to plug Smarter Scout in, but I want to give you an opportunity to kind of explain what the platform is and how it can kind of help. Because I know on the website you talk about how it could be used for professional use, but also, you know, by the retail customer. Yeah, well, we have a light membership, which is free, and it allows fans from around the world to check on players from, at this point, 27 different leagues, uh, top tier leagues from around the world. Um Going, we've got the Australian A-League. We also have uh, leagues from Latin America, Asia. Um, the only continent where we're not covering, where there's a lot of football, is Africa. It's harder to get those data. But uh, you can look up any player and look at them by the benchmarks of any of those leagues. So you could say, well, I want to look at a Swedish 
top-tier player by the standards of the German second Bundesliga, and we'll make those adjustments for you instantly, and you can look at all those stats online. We have stats that are useful just for appraising their overall uh, performance. We have stats that are especially for fantasy league players. We have stats that coaches and scouts like to use, and increasingly we're trying to provide stats that people on Football Index like to use as well. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, how many users have you guys got at the moment, if you, if you don't mind divulging? I've uh, got about 2,000 right now. Nice. I mean, it, the the website looks amazing. So, so congrats. And I know it's fairly new. It, it looks so, so, so good. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to probably have a play with, around with it after we, uh, we get off air. The best is yet to come, actually. We have a couple of things that no one's ever seen before that we're going to add very soon. And we're really excited about it. So keep your eye on it in the next few weeks. That sounds very, very exciting. We had a lot of questions from the Football Index community and people that aren't in the Football Index community, which is awesome. But before we get into that, I just need to remind you guys that this episode is brought to you by Real Fantasy Football. Uh, Tired of all the teams in your fantasy football league having the same players, bored already after game week one, play Real Fantasy Football. It's draft style, so you have unique teams. There's head-to-head competition every single week and playoffs too. It's not too late to start a league and you can start anytime during the season. So if you're looking for a league where Salah, Sterling and Kane are not on every team, go to Real Fancy Football and sign up today. That's realff.co.uk, realff.co.uk. Did a draft the other night with a few of the Football Index community and it was really good fun. Really intense though. I I was more stressed in that than having a really stressful day at work. And before we (laughs) really get into the questions, I just need to plug myself slightly because obviously that's important as well uh football index podcast episode 100 live in the flesh myself uh sam friedman lee otherwise known as football index sot and tall bob fi are all gonna be live well, i call it on stage but we're not going to be really on a stage we're going to be in a pub if you guys want to purchase tickets for that you can just search football index on eventbrite or the football index podcast uh, or you can head over to this link bit.ly forward slash 2g f-r-z-y-f now that's a mouthful i'll say it again bit.ly forward slash 2gf 3ZYF. Uh, tickets are going quick and uh, hope to see as many of you guys down there as possible because it will be brilliant. Uh, Dan, on with a plethora of questions, my friend. Uh, Buzzing Paul, who has been on the podcast a few times himself as a Football Index trader, and he's a guy who uh, loves his stats. Uh, we've, we've talked many, many, many a podcast with him and a few live streams about stats and analytics. He says, one of the difficulties traders, Football Index traders, have is assessing output and player quality from non-top five leagues. Do you have any advice for traders on how to avoid players whose output will drop once they transfer to a higher quality league? So what are some of the red flags that you see from a player that might be astoundingly good in, say, the Eredivisie, who's moving over to the top five leagues and you just don't quite fancy them to replicate those stats. Well, I think we're talking mostly about younger players because they tend to be the ones moving up. Uh, If we look at older players, you're always facing the risk that their performance is going to fall off a cliff when they get into their 30s. But uh, for younger players, step one for us is these league adjustments that we've been talking about. You know, you can look at a lower league player by the standards of a higher league on our site, and that's going to help you to see right away uh, how he would have stacked up. But uh, you, know, you also have to look at the context. You have to ask yourself, how did they come across this attacking output? You know, what did their defending quality depend on? Uh, if you have a player, for example, who took most of his club's shots when he was in the lower division, well, is he going to a higher division to play at a club where there are going to be other you know, incumbent players who are, are going to take a lot of shots as well? He might not get as much of the ball, and then it'll be tougher for him. So I think you have to look at his style, too. We have visualizations of all the player styles so you can see, you know, is their output coming from their shooting, their dribbling, their passing, etc. Or if they're defenders, you know, do they tackle a lot, do they intercept the ball a lot, do they disrupt opposition plays? And then you can look at that in tandem with our skill ratings so you can see, well, is he a good tackler? Uh, Is he good in the air? Because if he's not, you know, and he's perhaps been able to get by in the lower league with the quality of tackling that he has. But when he comes to the higher league, he's going to find it a lot more challenging to make the same plays. It's certainly 
obviously invaluable for clubs themselves to kind of assess these players as, as well as they can. And I'm sure that going through a plethora of data as we speak to try and get the likes of you know Hakim Ziyech to a to a top five league club and, and understand whether players like that could you know replicate their output but you know what are some of the the main attributes that you think are usually analyzed that you can kind of more easily translate from one league to another or is it just a whole package kind of thing that you have to look at well, you know, we have a whole variety of stats to capture different aspects of a player's game, and we make the league adjustment for each of them independently. So, you know, it, if we compare two leagues, like let's say the Championship and the Premier League, uh, the gap in attacking quality may not be the same as the gap in defending quality. The gap in aerial skill may not be the same as the gap in dribbling or tackling skill. Uh, and certainly finishing skill is a big one. You know, there's a much bigger gap, I would say, between the quality of Premier League and Championship goalkeepers and their ability to stop shots than there is, let's say, in the ability of uh, central defenders to get up and win aerial duels. So you, know, you have to consider all of these individual skills separately. And uh, it makes a big difference because you can see a player coming from the championship, well, he, he might still be able to get a lot of shots up in the Premier League, but he might have a much tougher time beating Premier League goalkeepers. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, certainly so many variables. Um, well, what, I, I know this is a weird, really weird question to ask, but what's kind of the percentage success from the simulations that you guys produce? Is, is, there, is there such a thing? Well, we try to, for example, identify young players who we think will go on to higher uh, leagues and bigger things. Uh, we have a special algorithm that identifies these young prospects. Uh, it's what we call a Boolean algorithm. It works on a set of rules to see whether players hit certain benchmarks and then combines these in a sort of uh, decision rule. And uh, that's been really successful, actually. Uh, we, we used When I was in the... Uh, Working inside clubs, we used a combination of that and some other basic statistics for, for peak age players to predict which ones would be you know, worth our time, let's say. And uh, you know, th th we got about a 70% hit rate as far as the players identified solely through data who then, when scouted video or in person in a live match, uh, were judged to be really worth following. So you know, that's pretty good. As far as the young players, uh, it's it's a higher hit rate than that as far as the ones who are going to go on to bigger things. Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty good going, right? If you can tell a scout that 80% of the players that they look at are going to be pretty good, then they're probably going to be pretty impressed. And so are the, the execs of a club. And uh, that's something that, you know, that might help uh, answer Buzzing Paul's question. Uh, so yeah, but I would add one thing, though. Sorry, uh, I would add one thing, which is that you must then filter the pool of players down even more through, you know, whether their style will fit the style of the club that's recruiting them, you know, the personality, the wages, etc. So if you start with the 70% hit rate, that's pretty good. But you have to understand that uh, even after the scout has uh, you know, winnowed it down a bit, you're going to winnow it down much more through these other considerations. Mm -hmm. And you'd be wise too. Right. Um, Football Index Scotland here. Looking forward to this one. Less of a question, but any insight into the element of transfers? Bale, Dybala, Hamez are all examples of huge players in terms of image rights, regardless of their on the field stock at a given point. How does this work and how does it impact on, uh, on a football career? The image rights typically are one more deal that has to be done before a transfer can occur. You know, you, you, in a transfer, and I know there's another question later on about this too, typically the clubs are going to arrive in an agreement first, what the fee should be, what the structure of the deal should be. Then the player has to agree personal terms. And then the image rights also have to be transferred, and there has to be a separate deal for that. And there could be different sets of agents involved in all of these considerations and intermediaries. So you're essentially adding another deal that has to be done on top of the other deals. And that makes it harder for the players to move. And it also means that there are typically fewer clubs that they could go to because the people concerned with their image rights obviously want to see them at the bigger clubs and they might be concerned about which markets they're in. So, uh, you know, it just it, it adds a little bit of sand into the gears of the transfer market for these players. What does the what do the image rights actually entail if a club owns them or if a player owns them? I know well, that's a silly question, but dumb it down for me. I mean, 
it's it's essentially the right to use the player's image and the player's name and all of those things in your advertising. And there can be conflicts sometimes where a player might be an Adidas player who goes to a club which is a Nike club. And then you have to decide, you know, in what situations is the player going to be able to show off Adidas gear and what situations is Adidas still going to be able to promote the player, etc. I'd recommend uh, Daniel G's book, Done Deal, to learn about the transfer process and image rights because he's a lawyer and he knows a lot more about this than I do. It's actually a really fascinating <laughs> read. Sounds very interesting. One I'll uh, maybe get myself stuck into. Uh, PB Man, a guy I know quite well. Uh, he's been on the podcast before as well, and he also is a very stats-heavy guy. So th- when I read this question, you'll probably realise why. Uh, how do you account for age curves on players? Is it done on an individual basis or position by position? When would you expect each type of player to peak? So. We can't really do it on an individual basis without knowing a ton about the physiology of the player. So we tend to look at groups of players and come up with benchmarks that we think apply to those groups. Uh, It's definitely broken down by position, and we see different positions peaking at different ages. For example, the youngest ages tend to be the really speed-intensive positions like a winger, uh, a fullback perhaps, or attacking midfielder. Then you're going to see slightly older peaks for center backs and even older for goalkeepers. And it's not just to do with physiology, it's to do with experience and being able to read the game. If you want to figure out what these are, uh, you could look at changes year to year in player performance. We recently posted a few graphics on that in our Twitter feed, and you could see a time when players were still increasing in performance when they're younger, then they sort of plateau for four or five years, and then they start to drop off as they get older. Uh, We see that at a couple different positions. And you can also estimate it simply by looking at the ages of players who play different positions. You know, when you're at the highest level, top five leagues in Europe or Champions League, well, they don't have to play players unless they absolutely want to, right? I mean, they're going to get the best players and play them at their peak ages. So just look at what the modal ages are at each position. You know, look at standard deviation either side of the mean or something like that, and you'll get a very good idea of what the peak ages are at each position. Yeah, it's certainly really interesting. And there's, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule, right? You've got a player like Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who was playing in the Premier League at age 35, still scoring an exceptional amount of goals, Ronaldo and Messi. Um, it, it is really interesting. Like when a team takes a big gamble on a, not a, I, was, I don't want to say gamble, but a player like Ronaldo, right, who's you know, his data set is so vast in terms of like what you see in, in the past of his career. And you shell out about 100 million euros on him. What are the execs at Juventus thinking when they do a deal like that? Do they actually take into account that there could be massive downside if he gets one injury or whatever? Or is it that his brand is so big that the the return on investment is just certainly worth it there? Well, there are a whole bunch of considerations. Certainly, you're putting all your eggs in one basket, so there is some risk of injury. But you also know that he's been a player who's been fairly injury-resistant throughout most of his career and that he, he takes good care of himself. Uh, so you have some assurance there. You also probably buy insurance. And, and he probably has it himself, but the club will also get it uh, because it is a significant investment for them. So they have to think about his commercial potential. That's the potential for match day revenue, merchandising revenue, all these other things. You know, shirt sponsorships, things like that. That money's already been just figured out in advance. That you know, the idea that they're going to pay for um, Ronaldo by selling all their shirts on the first day. Well, first of all, they're not selling most of the shirts. You know, a, a merchandiser or producer selling most of the shirts. But the one who paid to have Juventus's license, they've already paid that for several years. They're expecting that Juventus will get players like Ronaldo. To justify that, but there's the commercial potential, and there's there's the potential that he's going to help you win competitions. You know, if you win the Champions League, that's just an enormous amount of money that you pumped into your club, not just through the prize money, but through all the other things that come with it—tens of millions of euros—and um, he's going to be there for several years. You spread that transfer fee out over his whole contract. You amortize it, um, so they're not paying it all in one big lump uh, in terms of their overall business. The last thing is, you know, you're thinking about whether he's going to improve the other players that you've already brought in, right? Is he going to raise the return of all these other players? Uh, 
it's sort of an alpha versus beta thing for people who know finance. And uh, you know, it's 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 possible that he will, right? He's a leader. He inspires other players. We saw it with Portugal and the Euros, and I think they certainly expect that from him at Juventus too. Yeah, he's uh, certainly done that on occasion, especially in the Champions League against Atletico last season. Uh, probably didn't end up reaching their goal, which was uh, Champions League crown, but let's see what how they do next season. I uh, just wanted to ask you about the amortisation of, of a transfer fee across the contract, because I'm a big Arsenal fan, and when the, the Nicola Pepe announcement came out and that we were paying it over five years, people started going crazy. Um, how regular is this in the world of football, and why... Why should we not be shocked that this is kind of a regular occurrence? Oh, I don't think we should be shocked at all. You know, clubs, like any other business, want to uh, make their costs sort of smooth from year to year. They don't want big lumpy costs that are huge one year and low the next year because that's not how their revenue works, right? Their revenue is fairly smooth year to year. So uh, unless you're going to get relegated or win the Champions League, but those are rare for most clubs. So if you're having smooth revenue, you want smooth costs as well. And, and, and pay the transfer fee and installment is, is, is very common. Um, in fact, uh, it's probably more common than paying it all up front. Now, it's interesting to look at the other side of that deal, right? Uh, Lille was going to get the fee and in installments, but they have apparently opted to sell those installments to a company and get a smaller amount yeah. up front. Yeah, I heard about this. I heard about this. It's really interesting. You can kind of sell that incoming cash for a smaller amount and some company takes it on, um, which is which is certainly really interesting. And it's kind of like, you know, a purchase within a purchase within a purchase just gets all quite confusing. Uh, speaking of purchasing and, and spending, John Rennick has a question here. Uh, the spending in the Premiership is crazy since the days the big TV sponsorship started. Do you see this carrying on or do you think the high sponsorship will come to an end in the future? And will it leave teams with liabilities they can't afford? Well, the big source of growth in revenue right now for the Premier League is international rights. Uh, The UK rights have essentially stopped growing in value, but international rights have continued to grow and they're at this point, I think, as big or bigger than the UK rights. And they will certainly continue to grow as the global economy grows and interest in football grows. Um, I think that'll continue at least for, let's say, the next five years. Beyond that, I'm not sure. Uh, I think a bigger threat to primary league league clubs is something like the European Super League, where many of them... Or or Brexit? Well, Brexit is going to have some effect, but... uh, it, it, it really is going to depend to a great degree, and I know we'll talk about this later, uh, on how the work permit situation is sorted out and what sorts of players are actually allowed to come and play in the Premier League. Yeah, I think Brexit is, is scary, not just for football reasons in, here in the UK. So I think football clubs are probably, you know, looking at definitely hedging their bets if that were to happen or, or whatever deal comes about. I think the sponsorship thing is, is really interesting for me. It's really interesting how clubs, not so much on the sponsorship or big TV rights deals can get themselves in holes. It's more with kind of player contracts. So if you look at a team like Manchester United who have Alexis Sanchez on circa £500,000 a week, that contract is there for quite a long time and then it kind of skews what you can start offering your other stars. Same thing with, you know, Arsenal with Mesut Ozil on £350,000 a week, Mkhitaryan on £200,000 a week. You've got players like Aubameyang and Lacazette who currently probably want those wages increased to, to there or thereabouts. So how hard is it if you're a football club when you do give one of these mega contracts like Alexis Sanchez's at United to kind of revert back to having a smaller wager bill? Ferran Soriano over at City Football Group uh, used to be vice president of Barcelona and he wrote a book about his time there called Goal, The Ball Doesn't Go In By Itself. And he discusses the wage structure there. And they basically had three or four tiers of wages for the players in the senior Barcelona squad And if you wanted to go up a tier, you basically had to justify it by saying, I'm as good as those guys who are (laughs) in that tier. Um, So you couldn't just sort of walk in and say, oh, you've got all this money. I want you to pay me more now. It was very well defined. So I think if clubs can maintain those tiers, it's useful to them. When they bring in one of these mega contracts, they might have to start a new tier at the top. But then everybody who's one tier below is going to try and get into that. And, And one of the reasons analytics can be useful is it can help you to shove some numbers in those players' faces and say, no, you're actually not as good as that guy at the very top, uh, in a nice way, of course. 
Yeah, I'm not sure there's too many players at Barcelona at the moment claiming to be as good as Messi, for example. Uh, but it does. It's, it's interesting, though, because it can have such dire effects on a club if you have that uh, skewed wage structure. I think Daniel Levy, for example, rushed a few of the transfers. And maybe at Christmas time, if they had gone through with a Dybala deal, however good a player he is, they might have looked at him and like, we've actually got ourselves in the hole now because for a player at his age, he would have probably demanded a five to six year contract and at wages of £350,000 a week, you're looking at a gargantuan amount of money that's being outlaid on, on a player. Yeah, it's certainly a huge amount of money and you have to ask yourself if the levels of performance are there, if the ability to project the brand is there. You know, I, I would almost ask myself, is he as charismatic as some of these big players in the game? where he's going to become emblematic of our club uh, because for that kind of money, we expect somebody who's going to help to expand our brand worldwide, you know, who's going to help to turn us into a billion dollar platform. I'm not sure he's that guy. Well, yeah, at one point he he kind of was seen as that next maybe, uh, not heir to Ronaldo and Messi, but he was certainly in that conversation. So it's, it's interesting to see, he's not exactly declined but certainly now with Ronaldo there he's kind of in his shadow and it's kind of stunted his his kind of growth that's it goes back to what I was saying before you know he got a lot of his attacking output which was very impressive a few seasons ago at Juventus from shooting you know he's he's Mm. he shot a lot and he's a good finisher but Ronaldo shows up and all of a sudden you know someone else wants to take a lot of shots right (laughs) so you know he has to play a different sort of role a role to which he's not that accustomed and where he honestly doesn't excel as much as when he's more of a focal point of the attack how how big an influence can one player have on another team like a, a another team's players in total when they do join because there there is this perspective I know especially on football index but also in terms of like fancy football in general where people seem to just pick a player that did well last season when in actual fact this team has you know bought a whole new back line they've got a new central midfielder a new manager how big an impact do some of these things have to a player's performance they can certainly be very important Uh, I would say one of the most important things is if the playing style changes a uh, player who goes from a team that plays passing football to one that plays very directly is going to find himself doing very different things on the pitch. Uh, it's not just about the formation. It's not just about the players who are next to him, but it's about the overall strategy that the coach is playing. And those things can have a huge impact on his performance. Uh, but, but there are other more subtle impacts as well. I, I'll go back to Wayne Rooney. You know, he came in mid-season uh, uh, to DC United when he came back over from Everton. And it was at a time when DC United had played most of their season on the road because they had a new stadium that was going to open for the second half of the season. And they had lost a lot of games. Uh, They were in the last place and they really needed a lift. Wayne Rooney was a player who you knew was going to come in and really set a standard for everybody else in how he trained and how he performed and what he expected of his teammates because of the level at which he played before. Uh, He was a player who was going to get the captain's armband and he was going to demand respect and he was going to demand a certain level of effort from everyone around him. So not only was he there for what his own performance could be, but also for how he could affect the other players. And, you know, it was an interesting situation because there wasn't that much turnover in the rest of the squad. It wasn't as though they purchased a whole new squad. But they were able to get a lot more out of the squad because they had another force that was pushing everyone in the right direction. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think how, yeah, as you mentioned, one player can can do to, to a team just by their influence, whether it's a Ronaldo or a, a Rooney. It's uh, truly amazing. Yeah, well, they and went... Stats, stats are at the forefront. <laughs> yeah, they went from last place to the playoffs, which I don't think anybody really expected a big, big jump and uh, rumours of potentially Meza Ozil um, potentially replacing him in January or, or something like that. I won't pry too much into that. Um, we, next up, uh, I just need to plug Index Gain. It's a great player research tool, but also offers so much more with uh, portfolio monitoring, price move notifications and the latest transfer news. If you guys want to have 50% off your first month, uh, you can use the code FIG2020 over at indexgame.co.uk. I just got told by Bishop, one of the guys who uh, started Index Game, that uh, next year they're going to have a massively expanded uh, 
data set for the new season and they'll have fully comprehensive stats for all pb leagues and cups plus euro 2020 so that's all the new uh kind of player or pb matrix stats and attributes that have been added they're going to have them which is uh, pretty exciting uh, a next question here from football index focus and he's probably playing to your more economic background here dan uh, when analyzing value how important is market sentiment for me stubbornness is your own personal beliefs despite uh in your own personal beliefs despite obvious market opposition is a serious barrier to maximizing profit do you agree well i think that football index like any sort of stock market depends on two things it depends on supply and demand and it depends on fundamentals now in a regular stock market those two things interact in a way that's not always entirely clear the Companies that are in the stock market have a certain fundamental value based on their expectations of future profits. But regardless of what that value is, if a ton of people decide that they want to buy the stock all on the same day, it's going to push the value up, right? So the same thing can happen in football index to some degree. I'm not entirely sure how the algorithm works that determines the role of the fundamentals, right? That because that's entirely on their side. But you know, supply and demand is a part of it as well. So, you know, to the extent that supply and demand is part of it, sentiment can play a role. Uh, And you have to try and understand the engines of sentiment as well if you want to make rational decisions, right? An interesting experiment to do would be to see, you know, if some piece of news comes out, what happens to the price of a player in the first few hours and then what happens after that, right? So is there a bump and then a recession? Or is there a dip and then it comes back a little bit? Because as you start to understand these rhythms, then you can do what the quantitative traders and the hedge funds do in the stock market every day, which is try and ride all of those trends. Yeah, it's certainly something that affects football index. It's obviously got like a very unique way of of the price moving, but certainly you're right in terms of a bit of news breaking out and and price rising and then dipping and then people catching the news again or like from more, uh, you know, solid sources later on we certainly saw it in the transfer window a lot as you can imagine uh, i think dibala you know went up and down like a yo-yo considering the man united deal on off then spurs on off on off it was uh, a bit crazy but it's it's really interesting to talk about kind of um value and kind of sentiment in in markets and i suppose from a footballing's perspective how can how can teams be um uh, you know, not hoodwinked, but um, maybe when are, when what situations is it most likely that a, a team will kind of overpay for a player, for example? Perhaps because market sentiment has kind of um, gone one way. For example, you know, Harry Maguire went for 85 million. Lewis Dunk was rumoured for 40 million. Bristol City sold a centre-back for 22 million to uh, Brighton uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so what kind of situations... Is it simply just a player going for big money or is there more to it? There are a lot of sort of examples of saliency bias that lead to clubs overpaying. And what I mean by saliency bias is that uh, there's some event that happens that grabs their attention and uh, can overwhelm the instincts that come from looking at other types of information. So, you know, if a player has a really good summer tournament, like a World Cup or something like that, all of a sudden he's on everybody's list, right? Uh, You score a few goals in the World Cup, maybe a spectacular goal, all of a sudden you're on everybody's list, but that doesn't mean you should ignore all of their performance in league matches for the few seasons before that. Uh, Another thing that can happen is a player scores a goal against you during a league season, right? He scored those two goals, we played him home and away, he scored in both fixtures against us. So, you know, well, okay, if you sign him next year, he won't score against you, but that doesn't mean he's going to be a great player. You have to consider all the fixtures that he's played. So these are the cases where clubs get uh, too fixated on one little piece of information and they ignore the bigger picture. 
Yeah, it's, uh, it's it's certainly something that must play on the minds of, of these execs who are making the decisions at, at football teams. And I think speaking of Harry Maguire, uh, FI had Hunter said, do you look at heading volume as a valuation metric for centre-backs? And if not, do you think you should now include it after United paid £80 million for Harry Maguire? So I think they actually said head volume, right? Uh, and, and so, you know, the capacity of his cranium... Um, you know, maybe shape is just as important. I always wondered about Fellaini, you know, uh, whether that all that hair helped him to cushion his header somewhat and that, that you know, uh, or, or made it easier for him to reach the ball somehow. Uh, flip side of that was when Adebayor came back and he had two foot long dreadlocks. I thought, well, how much does that weigh? Is that slowing him down a lot? Um, so, you know, I, all of these physiological things are beyond me, but uh, you should ask a sports science guy. Uh, it'd be interesting to find out. There is something about Harry Maguire's head. Certainly, he is one of the best headers of the ball in any league in the world. He, he is very good at heading the ball, as we saw in the World Cup, didn't we? Uh, Floody FI, and this is back on to transfers now. Do you think social media has resorted various media outlets and journalists to make up transfer stories to pr- promote the outlet they work for due to the fact anyone can get news themselves? Well, I had some insight into this because uh, when I started consulting for clubs and then working inside clubs, I actually knew what was true and what was false and maybe <laughs> what had a grain of truth. And I came up with a 50-40-10 rule. About 50% of the transfer rumors are completely made up. There's no basis in fact. And, and that it, a journalist might just do that because, uh, you know, quote, journalist might do it just to drum up some interest. Uh, you know, there's so much silly stuff going around in silly season. Adding a little bit to the fire hose doesn't make that much difference. No one will notice. Everybody will forget about it after the window shuts, right? So 50% of it is complete twaddle. 40% usually has a grain of truth. You know, there was something that happened somewhere. You know, or, or at least an agent wanted to suggest it to pump up his player's value, but somebody connected to the player was involved. And 10% of it is true. So if you look at even the list that some esteemed publications put together of the most likely transfers to happen, they really only get about 10% of them right most of the time. So 50-40-10 is the way I see that, and that definitely leaves a lot of room for stuff to be completely made up out of whole cloth. The one thing that I really noticed in the last couple of transfer windows is that journalists that used to be very reliable no longer being reliable. And I think people don't really understand how dynamics in a club make it so a journalist might have better links into a club or worse links into a club. So, for example, now with, you know, I'm going to use Arsenal as an example because it's the club I know best and it's the club I support. But by having Raul Sanleni and um, Edu kind of orchestrating things in exec standpoint that means that you're going to have a lot more reliable news from brazilian outlets and probably from some spanish journalists and people don't really put those two things together usually and i always say to kind of traders on football index that if you're kind of looking to analyze who's um who's reliable and who's not it doesn't it's more dynamic than that it doesn't necessarily mean that that person's always going to be dyna- uh, reliable yeah uh, you know, past performance is no guarantee of uh, future returns. It's the same in forecasting the economy. Uh, I did a study many years ago when I was writing for the New York Times uh, to analyze the performance of all the Wall Street forecasters and how well they were able to predict economic growth in the U.S. And, you know, they were not really able to be consistently good. Uh, you, you know, the ones who were the most accurate one year would be terribly inaccurate the next year. So that if you found one who was accurate three or four years in a row, it might just have been luck. You know, there, there, there was no way to see whether it was really skill. Um, that's why you have to look deeper. You have to look below the surface and see what the links really are to see the quality of the information. I think trying to judge it by just last season's accuracy is probably hopeless. Before we move on to the next question, just give me a bit more of an insight into, you know, being inside a club and purposely leaking rumours. What, what situations do clubs do that in and, and why is that sometimes a great tactic from clubs to throw off scent? Because I seem to remember, again, I'll use Arsenal as an example, everyone thought Arteta was going to be the new coach and then suddenly Unai Emery came out of nowhere. Well, I don't have any personal experience with leaking. I've never leaked <laughs> anything. I was never important enough to leak anything. Uh, but there are things clubs can do that aren't necessarily even directly leaking that might get into the press and influence a deal. You know, if, 
if you are trying to move a player to team A, you might get in touch with an intermediary and say, why don't you offer the player to team B as well, because it'll probably leak out of team B that they've been offered the player, or maybe the intermediary himself will leak it, it'll get to the press, and it might drum up the value of the player, and you might be able to have more leverage in that deal. Um, so that's one possible scenario. Um, another scenario, uh, which would be less desirable, would be when you have to get the story out about why a player is performing a certain way or get the club's side of the story. You know, the club says that the, the player might say the club is treating him unfairly. Well, how is the club going to get its side of the story out? If it comes from someone who's not an official of the club, it might have more credibility in the press and like that. So, so there are a whole variety of situations uh, where leaks might happen. But let me tell you, the clubs that seem to have the easiest time are the ones that don't play this game. All right. I mean, you know, you don't see many leaks coming out of Spurs. You don't see many leaks coming out of Man City. Uh, you don't see many coming out of Liverpool. There are a bunch of in-the-know supposed people that are hovering around all these clubs, uh, but they tend to do their business in a fairly clean way. And I think that that makes it easier for them in the long term. There's certainly a lot of leaks coming out of Manchester United pretty much every day about what's what's going on, which probably tells you everything, right? Yeah. Uh, we've got another question about transfers here, and this this might take you a while to answer. Fi Charlie, are you able to tell us about the process of player transfers? Could you also explain how many people are involved in a big transfer these days? Agent fees seem to be ridiculous for the job they do. So tell us the uh, A to Z on transfers. Well, you know, again, I would refer to Daniel G's book, Done Deal. I think it's a comprehensive resource on this. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Russell's um, agent also wrote a book about being an agent, and it's got some information about uh, this kind of uh, process. But, you know, essentially, uh, the first thing that has to happen is that you know, the clubs have to have an agreement. And it's very rare that a club would go to the player first. Uh, there were some players who basically control where they move, the big players. And in those cases, the club might ask an intermediary to reach out to the player's agent and see if he'd be willing to come to the club. And then upon getting a green light there, the chairman might go to the chairman of the other club and try and see if they could get a deal. But the, you know, the deal between the two clubs has to happen first. And then it's brought to the player to see if they can uh, handle personal terms. You know, there are rules about when you can talk to a player, of course, tapping up and all of that. Um, but, uh, you know, already you get several people involved in the process at the highest levels because there might be several intermediaries involved. Uh, and then when you bring the image rights into the picture, as we said before, that's going to bring another set of actors. So for those reasons, you know, a complex deal involving a big, big name player can take a few weeks. It's very rare that that would just happen all of a sudden on deadline day. Some, if a big player is moving, it's probably been in the works for a couple of weeks. Now, of course, with the smaller leagues and, and players who are on much smaller wages, some of whom might not even have an agent, it can be much simpler. Uh, but a big transfer, you're, you're realistically looking at at least a dozen people involved in the process. Um, all of them are going to get a cut. Uh, the agents are often going to get a large cut, uh, and that's because they are, to a large degree, in control of where the player is going to go. Uh, and you have to remember that these agents have often invested a huge amount of time early in a player's career when they were not getting paid a cent uh, in order to help the player to get to where they are today. Uh, so they may see some of these big fees as payback for a job well done back then. And also for taking on the risk that the player would drop them as an agent even after he helped them to get to these places, right? Because an agent can be dumped at almost any time. So there's a lot of risk implicit in being an agent. There's a lot of investment early on where you don't see any return. Um, and ultimately, it is a market. You know, They wouldn't be getting these fees if it wasn't worth something like that to somebody. Uh, so we can complain about it all we want, but until FIFA really changes the rules in a big way, it's not going to change. Yeah, I, I don't think many people sympathize with agents and they don't really look at it from their point of view. I've had actual football agents before tell me that they've gotten up, you know, every day at 5am to drive a player to training. You know, that there's those type of stories that you do hear. And some of these guys quit being an agent in their late 20s and just get a regular job until, you know, whatever they do for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it's basically like being the player's brother or sister for years and dealing with everything that a brother, sister would deal with. Uh, 
And then maybe you get paid at the end of the day. Yeah, and also people don't think about the non-footballing aspects. If a player has, you know, is struggling to find a flat somewhere, or is you know, he's you know, he's he doesn't really know that much about taxes, then an agent is going to be the guy that they ask to help them find a real estate agent and an accountant and so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the bigger clubs now are starting to have player liaisons as well who will help with that stuff. You know, especially finding a flat, something like that. Uh, and there are some bespoke services that are sort of concierge services that will help the player to get the right car or the right watch and all those things. Those are for the very uh, high paid players, obviously. Um, but an agent has to play a role in that, especially when the player is younger uh, and hasn't gone to a big club. The agent's responsible for a lot of that. Interesting. Uh, Sweet FI has a very uh, nice message for you here and a great question. Glad you've got someone from the analysis community on the show. I use Smarter Scout and it's a great tool. Looking forward to hearing the show. My question is attached and he says, the chairman of a club comes to you and asks you to find a youth player, let's say under 22 year old. What is going to be the world uh, that is going to be world class in the next few years, but you can only use five metrics to scout that player. What are you using and why? Well, first of all, if I'm allowed to, I'm going to use our young prospect algorithm, which tracks a lot of different actions, but distills it down into one flag to see if we think it's going to go on to be a a big name. Uh, Second, I would use minutes, minutes played in senior football. Uh, There have been several clubs that for a long time, because they either couldn't process or didn't trust the event data that was coming out of companies like Opta, would just look at biographical data and say, you know, how many senior minutes did he play at 18? How many senior minutes did he play at 19, 20, et cetera? You know, what, were the level, what was the level of the opposition? Uh, and that it has a lot of value in identifying players because there aren't many players who are playing senior minutes in the top five leagues at age 18 who don't go on to a decent career. Uh, but when you go in the lower leagues, it's a little bit tougher. Uh, so you want to look at senior minutes. You want to look at whether we're flagging them as a young prospect. And after that, you want to look at things that really are specific to the position. You know, For a center back, you might want to say, well, what's the skill in aerial duels? What's the skill in tackling? And what's the ball retention, for example? You know, With those three things, you've got a pretty good idea of, of how um, uh, good they're going to be. And, and maybe also, you know, what's the level of involvement in defending? You know, how aggressive are they? Uh, with those three or four things, you can get a pretty good idea of the player's quality. That's super interesting stuff, but obviously uh, not ideal if you're if a chairman asks you to only use five stats, right? Yeah, well, I could take a subset of those depending on the position, and it'd probably get pretty close. So, so why is minutes again go into the the minutes uh, played? Because I remember, um, you, you know, we've seen it. This is a very obvious correlation, right? A player like Jaden Sancho has gone to Borussia Dortmund and played nearly as many minutes as he could do. How much more important is that between, you know, the ages of like 17 to 20, say, than some players who don't really break into a team until maybe 21, 22, 23? I mean, I think it is potentially an important flag because if a coach in a top five league is saying this 18-year-old is good enough to play almost every minute in the league, you know, that's, that's sort of an independent verdict, right? You know, it's not just the coach making that decision. He's got his assistant coaches. He's got the sporting director. He's got the fans, the media, everybody who's watching him. And he's taking the risk of playing this young kid, you know, basically every minute. Uh, that's, that's really saying something. You know, that's, that's an important signal that this is a good player. Uh, you know, that he'd rather play this player than all of his peak age players at the, in, in one of the top five leagues in the world. Uh, as I said, when you go to the lower leagues, then those clubs face a bit more constraints and it's more likely that a young player would get those kinds of minutes and then you want to look at some of these other metrics. All right, go on. Give us a tease. What, what are the, some of the players that you expect in, in next season to kind of explode on the scene? Is there, is there anything that you guys have looked into? Well, we did a whole section of looking at players in the second tier in uh, Europe's top five leagues uh, to see which ones we thought ought to go into the first tiers. And uh, one who we picked up on uh, was David Okereke, uh, a Nigerian striker who'd been in Serie B. Um, you know, Okereke, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, he, he is uh, a big striker. He's six foot tall. He's only 21 years old. And uh, he's moved to uh, Bruges, to Club Brugge, 
And uh, we thought he could go to one of the top five leagues easily. I mean, his levels of performance were fantastic. He had a breakout season um, you know, for, for uh, well, he was with Spezia and Cosenza. And uh, I think that if we see that many flags for one player, it's pretty certain that he's going to be able to play at a higher level. Now, the Belgian uh, first division is not that much higher a level than the Italian Serie B. Uh, but we think he can go even higher than that. And uh, if you watch what they've done just this season, uh, Bruges has a pretty good record of uh, picking out players uh, who can go to a higher level and making a profit on them. Uh, in Okereke's case, because he's a Nigerian citizen, uh, it's a bit tougher for him to move to uh, England, for example, to the Premier League because of the work permit rules. Um, so, you know, if he makes his name at Bruges, uh, then they'll be able to bring him in at a high fee or perhaps he'll get more caps with the Nigerian national team and then he'll be able to get a work permit that way. But everything could change post-Brexit, so it's... <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's looming, isn't it? And uh, it's, it's really interesting, you know, Club Bruges, a team that just sold Wesley and Moraes for you know, a ridiculous fee to, to Villa. Um, is there anyone in the, in the top five leagues that, that you might have your eye on? Uh, well, certainly, but it, some of them won't really come as a surprise to anybody. So uh, it's, 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 it's maybe not as interesting. You know, Jaden Sancho is another player who just had obviously a phenomenal season, breakout season with very great, very big numbers. Um, so there's no doubt that he's one to watch. Um, and then, uh, you know, there are a few younger players um, that you might not have heard as much about, but they're typically going to go on loan to a championship club or some other club like that this season, see if they can get regular playing time, and then we'll see if they're ready for the big time. Got another question. We mentioned Mo Salah right at the beginning of the show. FI Headhunter, who had loads of questions, but I picked this one. Uh, do you think Mo Salah's goal tally in the first season at Liverpool was a black swan event? Well, as I said, you know, we, we have his data on the site from 2016-17 uh, in Serie A, and uh, it was just outstanding. It was hard to do better than that. Uh, Suggested to a Premier League standard, and he was still 94 out of 99 for attacking. Um, so that basically means we thought he was going to come into the Premier League and be essentially in the top 5% of attackers at his position. Um, and, wow. and he's done that. You know, his, his numbers have been very consistent since he came. Uh, and we're looking at his underlying stats for the quality of chances that he uh, took and that he created. But we also look at the quality of his finishing, and it's still extremely high. So uh, in, in that sense, no. You know, a black swan is something that uh, not only did you not think could happen, but you couldn't even conceive of. You didn't even know it was something that could happen. Now, clearly we knew that Salah could have a good season, right? It's in the realm of possibility. Uh, but I would say that it wasn't even that surprising if you looked at those metrics. Why did no one else go for him then? I think that there is a bit of uh, a stigma, you know, for a player who you know, was thought to have failed at Chelsea. I mean, uh, you know, Kevin De Bruyne is another one, right? Why did it take so long? Why, why did he have to have a big season in Germany? Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an unusual thing. You know, there's the stigma and there's possibly a prejudice that um, the Premier League is much more difficult than other leagues. And it is, it is a higher quality league than, than virtually every other league except the Champions League at this point. Uh, the TV rights have helped to see to that. Uh, and, and, but, but someone who is off the charts in Serie A like Mo Salah, he's going to be a very good player in England. I don't think there's much doubt about that. Yeah, it's uh, one that I'm sure lots of teams are kicking themselves over and over and over about. Uh, next question from Jim Johnson. This is a slight tangent. With the news yesterday about the Athletic UK, does the media need updating to reflect articles from behind the paywall? So what did you make of this? Obviously, as a you know, someone who's from America, you uh, know the Athletic very well. They made their explosion onto, onto UK turf with about a 10 million pounds, I think, kind of uh, invasion, so to speak. What, what are your thoughts? Well, you know, the co-founder of The Athletic, Alex Mather, has said that he's going to uh, continuously bleed local media dry and rob them of all their best talent until The Athletic is the only one left standing. So uh, you've got that fantastic uh, portent to look forward to in the UK. Um, you know, media has to be paid for somehow. And in this era, we see a lot of different models being tested, and The Athletic is one of them. Uh, it's a subscription model, uh, and you pay a certain amount per month. 
I think that we'll find out very soon whether it's sustainable. You know, they think that the way to do it is through talent and longer form articles, which are tougher to fund these days in local media. Um, and uh, I think they're right in the sense that, you know, spot news, the kind of just basic news that you can read on Google, has been totally commodified and you have to separate yourself somehow from that, distinguish yourself. Um, and, and they may have found the way to do it, but I think there's, they're a few years away from really proving that it's gonna work uh, in British football. I don't, however, think that the British football market is so different from American sports markets that their whole business model will collapse because of that alone. Yeah, I think it's um, it's certainly an interesting model. I think I've always said from a media perspective, if you're gonna do something behind a paywall, you better hope that your content is elite and you better hope that um you have a really really good marketing strategy and you probably need quite a lot of money uh, and the way that they've gone about it is just to hire talent they've just got the best writers in the uk they've they're advertising on the biggest podcast in the uk and there is that friction that people seem to have in terms of paying for content but i think about it like you know only 10 15 years ago i remember when people were starting to regularly pay for stuff online my dad who's like 60 odd years old right now he um he he didn't he didn't like it he didn't like the idea of paying online and i was like oh why why and he was like it's not it's not safe it's not safe blah blah blah. and then that friction slowly starts to minute to diminish and then by 2030 we're apparently going to be doing you know 90 percent of our retail shopping via e-commerce which is incredible and then if you look at for example when iphones started to come out and uh, purchasing applications that was a weird feeling for people you know buying an app uh, but then 10 years on or 15 years on that friction is no longer there you know if i want to buy an app and it costs three pounds 99 i don't do it i don't even think about it and so i think that's going to be the same situation for things like this behind a paywall whether it's patreon or something like the athletic where in 10 years people are going to be like well actually i used to buy dvds now i use a, a Netflix subscription and it's probably going to be the same for other content. Well, it's, it's something we thought about with Smarter Scout too, because Smarter Scout runs on a freemium model. We have a, a free user level and then we have some premium levels. And, you know, we thought, well, we could also try and make revenue with ads. But I thought to myself, you know, I use transfer market a lot, like a lot of people to look at players and I use an ad blocker. I don't see any ads on transfer market. Right? So uh, is, are ads really a sustainable source of revenue, and especially now that people are much, uh, easily, much more easily able to track the click-through rates and the actual revenue that they get from ads? There's going to be a watershed in the digital advertising industry. And so we thought, no, you know, at, at least with subscriptions, we kind of know uh, that our revenue is going to be fairly steady. But then again, you know, if we only get free users and we don't get any subscription users, Smarter Scout's going to go away because we, we have to pay the bills somehow. Yeah, got to keep the lights on somehow. But I think for, for, for you guys as well, you're, you're adding value to someone, whether it's, you know, a, a you know, football index trader or a, a scout, you're actively making their life easier. And therefore, you know, they, you're either taking them in time or money or you're making them money. So it's kind of that direct added benefit, which I suppose is, is so good, especially when you have the freemium model and, and tiered subscriptions. Yeah, well, we obviously want people to have a chance to get to know the site for free before they would pay any money. Uh, so, uh, and, and we're happy to have a lot of free users too because they, they post some of our content online and they help us to get the word out. Amazing, amazing. Uh, we've got one final question and it's everyone's favourite B word. Do you think Brexit would affect how clubs are run? What personnel will still be available? Uh, future transfers in particular, etc. Do you think clubs have even thought about it? Well, I I hope so. I hope they have. <laughs> I think it's definitely going to affect how clubs are run. I think some have thought a lot about it. Some have probably thought about it only in passing. You know, a player like Joao Cancelo, you know, he's, he's a Portuguese international. He's commanding a high fee. He's commanding high wages. Uh, you know, he's, that, his transfer is not going to be affected very much by these sorts of things. Whatever the rules are that the FA come up with, uh, you know, Joao Cancelo is going to be able to play in the Premier League. But then you have all these other cases that enter into more difficult territory. Um, like, for example, Newcastle just signed a backup fullback uh, named Emil Kraft for $5 million, uh, from Amiens. And uh, they can sign him because he's an EU citizen. They don't need to worry about a work permit for him. But, and he's played a few games for Sweden. But he, you know, he's not 
of the level of player where you would say, obviously he's gonna raise the caliber of the game in England. Um, so if it's no longer possible to bring in EU citizens so easily, he's the kind of player who might not come. Another is Richarlison. When Richarlison initially came to Watford, you know, he wasn't that well known. He didn't have an EU passport. He hadn't played really much for Brazil, if at all. Um, and uh, they had to justify his work permit by the size of the fee they paid and the, where he was going to be in the wage structure. Um, and obviously now, you know, he's gone to Everton for a much bigger fee and, and he's a Premier League mainstay. But uh, he's another kind of player who you would think, well, I'm not sure if he could come back. Um, but then again, you know, if EU passports are no longer a guarantee of work permit, but there are some other rules that make it easier to bring in certain types of foreign players. You might see a player like Taiwo Awaniwi, who is a Liverpool-owned player who's been playing in Belgium the last couple of seasons. His numbers have been incredible. He just signed on loan for Mainz in the Bundesliga. Uh, he's a big center forward. He's only 21 years old. Um, he should probably be in the Liverpool senior team, but they would have a very hard time getting a work permit for him because they already own him and he hasn't played really for Nigeria. So, um, you know, if these rules change, you could see a certain type of player who's not going to be able to come very easily and others who can. Where it's really going to have a big effect is in the lower league clubs, right? Because a League Two club right now can sign a European player from anywhere in the European Union. But what if the FA comes and says, well, obviously we're not in the European Union anymore, so you can't do that. And it has to be a player who's played 50% of the last 10 internationals for his nation. Uh, there's no League Two club. I mean, unless you're going to sign someone who played for Samoa, uh, it's just not going to happen. So, um, you know, we might see in the lower tiers uh, a lot fewer foreign players because they have tended to come from EU nations. Mm, yeah, I, I for some reason in my head, I was like, well, if we leave the EU, does that make it just as easy to buy a player from Brazil? than it does from France. It, it, would that be the case, right? So it, it, what, might we see more of, you know, more players coming from South America and other countries into the English game and teams not only solely focusing their scouts on, on Europe, even though that's where, you know, the highest quality is? Yeah, I think there'll definitely be a shift because uh, if, if France becomes just the same as Brazil, as far as the work permits are concerned, you're going to have to see some shift in scouting. <laughs> I think, you know, Premier League clubs for years have resented the fact that it was so tough to get Brazilian and Argentine players to play in England. Um, so that might become a bit easier, but at the same time, it's going to be tougher to get these other players. Um, one thing that I am worried about with respect to Brexit is that we already see so few English players playing abroad and yet they all seem to benefit from it and now we'll probably see even fewer. But on the other hand we may see fewer foreign players in the English game so we might see more of the English players get a chance in their teams. I mean we already have to look at Chelsea for example they weren't allowed to to sign players for one transfer window that's all it took and suddenly you've got Mason Mount um, Ross Barkley, Tammy Abraham, uh, and all these guys getting a chance at Chelsea, which is uh, you know might happen in the future if you, the the pool of players you can buy is limited. Yeah, but as an economist, you know that uh, whenever you limit the labor pool, the overall quality is going to go down, and whether that threatens the value of the broadcast rights is going to be the ultimate decider here, because if having an increase of twenty or thirty percent in the number of English players you see on the field means that the quality of the Premier League goes down overall and the product is less attractive, uh, then the value of the broadcast rights is going to go down and it's going to screw all these Premier League teams. So they're going to be lobbying very hard to the FA basically to ensure that they can sign the same quality of player that they can sign now because this is the best time they've ever lived in. You know, they have so much more money than the other leagues that they can outbid just about anybody and bring the best players in the world to England. That's why this league has such valuable TV rights right now. <laughs> Certainly a really interesting perspective that I didn't really think about before, but it's going to be interesting to see if maybe that the FA have to balance out kind of grassroots and the quality of the future of the English national team and the under-21s and so on and so forth with the massive profits that the EPL is showing. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to wonder whether the Premier League will... Uh, dissolve if they put too much pressure on them to stay away from foreign players because it will make it more attractive for some of these clubs to play in a European Super League um, and uh, you know they, they, they may want to set the rules themselves outside of the confines of the FA. 
Now that would be strange. Uh, Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Uh, before you leave us, where can people find out more about you and Smarter Scout? Well, just go to smarterscout.com or follow us on Twitter at Smarter Scout. Um, that's where we get a lot of our content out. And uh, if you do uh, sign up on smarterscout.com, it's free to sign up. And then you can read our FAQ and read all about how these ratings come together. And feel free to ask us questions via Twitter about which uh, ratings and metrics that we use might be most in- interesting or useful for Football Index because we want to serve the community. We want to serve the Football Index community, the Fantasy Premier League community, and just the fans who are interested in the players who might be coming to their clubs. Amazing stuff, man. Definitely check it out, guys. It's a beautiful website with uh, intense and deep analytical uh, stuff underneath it as well. So it's it's great to watch, great to look at, and uh, great to dig into. If you guys are commuting right now, uh, have a great commute. If you're not commuting, doing whatever you're doing, gardening or uh, just sat on the sofa. If you're that guy who's uh, listening to the podcast who told me that he's doing it at work, but uh, that I shouldn't tell his boss. I hope your boss isn't listening. Uh, sorry if we didn't get to answer all your questions. Obviously, you know, a, a man of Dan's caliber was was asked so many, which is uh, flattering for him, I suppose. But great for the show and, and great for everyone involved. Thank you guys very much for uh, listening. Have a great day.